0: I, we're ready to talk about Passover, about Pesach. And as I was going over my sources and thinking about it, I actually want to start with history of the development of the holiday, what we can surmise, because it's so interesting. Um, uh, that's why I have the Chumashim here. Pass, And then I also want to get us all the way into the present. Um, Passover has four names in Hebrew. Four totally legitimate names, right? It's Chag HaPesach, the festival of Passover, Chag Aviv, the festival of spring, Zman Cherutenu, the time of our liberation, the season of our liberation, and Chag HaMatzot, the festival of matzah. So one of the good guesses as to why a holiday might have four names is because it's a, it's a combination of a variety of ancient festivals that eventually came together in one celebration, and that's, I find that interesting enough that I want to actually look at it with you for a little while and surmise, because it's all, it's all you know, historical supposition how this happened. We don't have any written records. Um, and I was rereading. And I want to dedicate our, our study today to Rabbi Arthur Waskow, uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. We're going to talk about him more later. But one is that in 1980, what, two, he published this book called Seasons of Our Joy, which is about, it's really his, it's really a masterpiece about the cycle of the Jewish year, which he covers historically spiritually, practice. It's just very beautiful work. And uh, so he begins the treatment of each holiday as he goes through the year, with the historical origins that we, the most, the most, uh, uh, the, best, uh, the best ideas about the historical origins of the holiday. And then the other reason I want to dedicate, it, and so he's been, in, this book has been like my holiday uh, manual for a long time, And but he, Arthur also, in what inspired him to get into Jewish... Arthur um, Arthur's going to be uh, 83 this fall. What inspired him to get into Jewish life. He was a secular um, Jew. He, was a, he has a PhD in American history. He was a radical, uh, political radical in the 60s. He, he taught, you know, universities. Um, a uh, lot of stuff. But anyway, But in, in as he, we got him to record his story on uh, the CD I made with Kim and Reggie 10 years ago called mm-hmm. Let My People Go, a Jewish and African-American celebration of freedom. And his inspiration to that made him realize that Judaism had more in it than he'd ever imagined was when he was living in Washington, D.C., in April 1968, right after King was assassinated, and the federal troops were in the street, and Washington was burning, and he was getting ready for his Pesach Seder, because, you know, you don't have to be religious to have a Pesach Seder, right? And he looked out at the streets, and he thought, this is Pharaoh's army. It was 1968. And it's like, it the next year he wrote a Seder, called the Freedom Seder, which he uh, led in a uh, church basement in Washington with 800 people, Jews and Blacks and Jews and Christians, where he combined the traditional Haggadah. Leave it. Rabbi nice. I'll show everybody. There's OK. Is,
1: there's an exhibit at the University of Colorado in Boulder about the Freedom Seder. And we got to go see it. And Arthur was there.
0: Oh, nice. When was that?
2: January.
0: Oh. Uh, So Arthur, from this moment of, what would you call that uh, moment of like... That's epiphany. Epiphany, Epiphany, that's the right word, where in every generation Mm -hmm. there's a story about oppression and liberation that has to be told. Yeah, there's Arthur. Thank you.
3: It looks like Santa Claus.
0: Right, well, this is from, this is from January. He's. Oh. Uh,
1: uh, we were talking about out. it, and some, uh. some students were studying, and there were those people making noise over there. And mm-hmm. one of my friends went over to them and said, You see that, that exhibit? That's the guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, they're college students, okay. Uh, uh, and, and that was one of the first modern. Interpretive satyrs <coughs> from which have flowed countless haggadahs in the last 50 years, right? So Arthur is an, is an important figure in American Judaism in that way, and he deserves to be honored. That eventually led him, 20 years later, to become a rabbi. Um, he was not, he was a history professor. Um, he testified at the Chicago Arthur 7 trial. trial. He's got stories. Yeah. Oh boy, has he got stories. Uh, Anyhow, so I wanted to I wanted to honor Arthur uh, by uh, because in this...
3: The Echo that you hear about later on.
0: Just like other people who've made a big difference, sometimes you don't know whose idea that was and you find out, oh. Really Carol? Here's a story I've never told anybody. About Arthur? Well, about the
1: Or the book of the Freedom Seder. Sometime in the 70s, long, I had nothing to do with Judaism for a very long time. It might have been after my father died. I don't know, but I wanted to make a Seder. And I invited my sister and her family and a few other people. And
0: I found this Seder in the book. It's like three... three yeah, I have that. I found it in the bookstore, and
1: I was enchanted by it. It would, it could have been... I could have like started right then and there, and I made this Seder, and everybody at the table just laughed at it. How stupid it was. How... How... Um, silly it was. I mean, nobody got it. And I, it was so heartbreaking. Oh. And it kept me away for another however many years. I, I, did, I mean, I didn't know where to go anyway, but, but it just seemed like nobody, I just, I got it. And nobody else that was around me even remotely got it. They were embarrassed by it. And it, and it really was, when I think about it right this minute, it really was my first entry point back home. That's so
0: interesting. Mm. I have to tell him that I have to tell, tell him that. He's going to have a baptism in October.
3: Uh, Gail, you want to add
0: something? Else? No, just yeah. I, I was saying it wasn't King was aware of it. King oh, used sorry. the story. Oh, King used the story, sorry. absolutely. What I'm talking about this is, is a, no, just, uh, using a, a, a rewriting of the Haggadah. Yeah
3: that's what you're
1: talking about. But yes, it, but it was not. Why did they think it was stupid? I guess that's I like, was like cuz it was playing people with were text. used it to like, No, because it was new agey. It was, it, age. was it was it was tr- it was trying to be I don't even know. I can't. I mean, I, it's right. been a long time, but they they just these are No, I don't think these are people who even now, today, think of Judaism in the terms that, that have become just second nature to us, which is things mean things. You know, it's not just what you grew up with or it's not just, okay.
0: So what, what I'd it's like...
1: embarrassing because it was, it was real. Right, okay.
0: So I guess I'm going to, since I started with this, I guess I'm going to turn my lesson plan around. I'm going to do what I was going to do at the end first. Okay, so... The Haggadah text, which we will approach from behind a little later, became fixed sometime in the uh, late antiquity, early Middle Ages, 8th, 9th, 10th centuries. It got, had some additions to it over the years, like in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, songs like Chagad Yah got added to it, and also in the Middle Ages, a passage that's been eliminated from many, um, during the Crusades, a passage that's been eliminated from many contemporary Haggadahs, which says, pour out your wrath upon the nations. Kick their butts for what they've done to us. Uh, And in a traditional Haggadah, you'll find that uh, passage. But most of the text had been fixed by that time. And therefore, nobody was writing a new Haggadah. Arthur's was not the first in 1969, the Freedom Seder. He didn't know this. But the first modern Haggadah was by, and this happens to be a first new edition, of the new Haggadah by Mordechai Kaplan, mm-hmm. Eugene Cohn, and Rabbi Eugene Cohn and Rabbi Ira Eisenstein. Mm-hmm. So just for our nineteen forty two in the middle of the Second World War. Wow. And and this was one of the reasons that Kaplan's that a small band, a small aguda, a small group of Orthodox rabbis did a public book burning of Mordechai Kaplan's work because he was willing to tamper with the tradition. This is a, this was, this, this is a famous story um, at the Algonquin Hotel or something. I don't remember. Anyway, uh, I can tell you more about it. However, for our purposes, I want you to know that Mordechai Kaplan's main disciples were Rabbi Eugene Cohn and Rabbi Ira Eisenstein. (coughs) Rabbi Eugene Cohn was the father of Aaron Cohn. Aaron and Ruby Cohn Uh were members of our congregation Uh for a long time until uh, they had to move down to an assisted living near their their daughter down in the DC area. Uh, uh, Aaron's been dead for about five years. Ruby's about 95 now and doing okay. But Aaron and Ruby's father, Eugene Cohn, Rabbi Eugene Cohn, was one of the writers of this Haggadah. Rabbi Ira Eisenstein I've spoken about. Some of you knew him. He and his wife, Judith Eisenstein, who was Mordechai Kaplan's daughter. Judith is famous for having received the first bat mitzvah in 1922. Her father wanted to introduce the idea of a bat mitzvah because he was a a believer in women's suffrage and in modernization. Remember, Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of the, not the founder of, I should say more likely, the creator of this approach to Judaism that he called Reconstructionism, uh, always put his ideas into practice in the face of incredible ridicule and um, um, attack. Right. So he was a real pioneer. So Ira and Judy actually... Lived in Woodstock after they retired. I've talked about them before. Um, they moved here in 1981 and started Reconstructionist Chavura, which was started by um, um, Myra Schwartz and Stu Maurer. And uh, so our community has a very personal link to this Haggadah from 1942 that's worth describing.
2: Hmm.
0: This was a radical text. And it was the first time in modern that we're aware of that someone undertook. Here's what they said uh, in their foreword. The appearance of the new Haggadah calls for a word of comment. Oh, by the way, there's a photograph that I've seen of. Um, they did this back in these, those days. It's true of some synagogues now. Uh, Ira was the rabbi of the SAJ, the Society for Advancement of Judaism. Synagogues in New York City basically shut down for eight weeks in the summer. And everyone came up to the mountains.
2: Yeah.
0: So they would come up every year to Tannersville, and there are pictures, and they would work on their prayer books, because they didn't have time to do the rest of the year. So there's pictures of Ira and Eugene Cohn and Morcha Kaplan sitting outside their cottage cabin in Tannersville working on this stuff. <laughs> I just like that it's all sort of They're nearby.
3: Would you still come for the summer?
0: They'd come for the summer, right? Brooklyn. That,
3: Brooklyn, come, Brooklyn right? Come right. to it,
0: yeah. right? Right. Um, right. Have you ever seen the synagogue in Tannersville? It, it's a really sweet synagogue. Uh, and it's closed all year now, except in the summer when the Hasidim come up and take it over. Yeah. Okay, so here's what they wrote in their foreword. Well,
3: that's why I to wanted to dad. So.
0: The appearance of the new Haggadah calls for a word of comment. Undoubtedly, many will ask, why a new Haggadah? And what is new about it? We should like, therefore, to say a word in answer. The age-old struggle between those who cherish freedom and those who would deny it to their fellow men, and that's the 1942 language, has become more embittered than ever. In that struggle, the Jews are deeply involved they have a great stake in the ultimate victory of the cause of freedom, 1942. In all previous generations, Jews derived their faith in that ultimate victory from their tradition and their religious heritage, and particularly from the epic of the Exodus. For centuries it was to the Pesach Haggadah that Jews turned whenever they suffered oppression and injustice. The Exodus of the Israelites from ancient Egypt was a constant assurance that they too would be delivered from tyranny. They believed that just as God had liberated Israel from Pharaoh by a strong hand and an outstretched arm, so would he redeem Israel from the tragedy of the Galut, Golis, exile. Times have changed. We live in a new world, and we are confronted with new conditions. But the problem is still the same. That problem is how, in the face of setbacks and despite the demagogic appeals of false prophets, to keep alive in men the love of freedom and their faith in it. That is why the Pesach Haggadah has assumed once again a major role in the lives of Jews. It has a message that is fraught with power and beauty. It needs only to be transposed into a new key, into the key of modern thought, modern experiences, and modern idiom. The language and the concepts of the ancient rite need to be revised so that they go straight to the minds and hearts of the men and women of today. Well, Good, huh? To that extent, this Haggadah is new. We have retained the traditional framework, but we have filled it with the living, compelling content of present-day idealism and aspiration. We have prepared a text which enunciates the essential message of Pesach clearly and unmistakably. We have steadily kept in mind the needs of the young American Jew. And we have striven to offer him such gems of rabbinic fancy, such readings, responses, poems, and songs as would stir in him that devotion to freedom which our forefathers gained from the pesachagada of tradition, and so on. Wow, Um, it's really cool to read this again. They were always ahead of their time, Um, uh, and they made they that's what they did. They did a revised Haggadah, and um, I was having fun looking at it.
3: Is it still in print? Yes,
0: yes. still in print. Behrman House is still around, mm-hmm. and it reprinted it not that long ago in a new edition. Um, or what's not that long ago, 20 years ago? <laughs> no,
2: it's still around, oh, it's available.
0: It's around, yeah. Okay, it's fascinating and wonderful. And then, recently, five, ten years ago, another new Haggadah was discovered called a Survivor's Haggadah. Any of you ever come across this? We've talked about it in synagogue. Bob, are you familiar with
2: this? Is that the Wallach
0: Haggadah? Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, No, it's something different. Um, The person who edited this Haggadah, his father... Was a U.S. Army chaplain in after the Second World War, and in the year, and and in the year after, I think it was 1946 in Munich, I believe. People from Jews from DP camps, deportation camps, uh, in the area who still uh, hadn't. It was the year after the war gathered, let me see if it was Munich or Frankfurt. I uh, Anyway, gathered, I think it was Frankfurt, gathered under American army auspices for a Seder. Survivors of the camps created a Haggadah. This book is amazing because it's like, talk about ripped from the headlines. It's like this experience is fresh from them where all the woodcuts are scenes from the concentration camp. But the quotes underneath it, are from the book of Exodus. Let me share an example with you. And the reason we didn't know about it, it was in the bottom of this guy's stuff until it was discovered by, I think, his son many recently. Mm-hmm. Um, let me find. It's all written by hand. I really would love for you to look at this. Here's a typical one. The line from the Haggadah that says, that says Shelo Echad Bilvad in every, that uh It seems that in every era, a new person has arisen who wants to eliminate us. And it's a picture, a woodcut of, uh, of Nazis uh, in the camp gunning down Jews, right? So for them, this Haggadah, now that they were free, can you imagine? Um, let me find another one. Um, uh, here's a picture that says, from the Haggadah, the line is, lo gazar ella al hazharim. Um, Pharaoh only decreed that the, the male children should be killed. But Laban sought to uproot all of us. And that's a line from the traditional Haggadah. And the woodcut is of a selection line um, in the camp. right?" And the, so you'll look at this, it's, I can't, uh, when we, uh, when this book first came out, let me see what year it was, in the year 2000, I completely lose track of time now, um, uh, a gentleman whose name will pop back in my head, who uh, uh, was in services that night when we were talking about it, and he says, I was at that Seder, he was a German survivor.
2: Albany?
0: No, it wasn't Rice, oh, no, 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 his name will come back to me. They had a house um, uh, in Woodstock and they came up on weekends and I imagine they might have passed away by now. Um, their name will pop back in my head, they were members for a number of years. He raises his hand and he says, I was at that Seder, and we were like, what? Yeah, I was in the DP camp and, I, anyway, he remembered it. So. It's one of those moments that makes your whole life worthwhile. Mm. uh, It was an amazing experience. So in the modern era, my point is, even though Arthur's was one of the early ones, the first one that we know of was Mordechai Kaplan and Eugene Cohn and Ira Eisenstein. And then it turns out, in
2: 1946,
0: Mm. um, concentration camp survivors were making their own Haggadah Certainly, the birth of Israel leads to a whole new understanding of what it means, l'shanah ha Ba'ab, You know, this story is alive. And that's why, that's the most important thing I wanted to point out. But sort of historically speaking, therefore, it's been about 75 years that contemporary Jews have been rewriting the Haggadah. Prior to that, I don't think that took place. I think that is a product of modern consciousness, that you can take this and do it, that it wouldn't have occurred to people in the Middle Ages or in uh, early, you know, in, or late Middle Ages, that it would, it would require modernity for this idea to become something that we might do. Because to do that, you have to have an historical, a sort of an historical consciousness. Times have changed, therefore. Right, as opposed to this This is the way we've always done it, and this is the way we'll always do it. How
2: could, you, could you pass the Yeah, let's
0: pass this around. Yeah, and let's pass this around the other way. And I don't have a copy of the Freedom Seder uh, with me here right now.
2: So before
3: 1942, the Haggadah had remained basically unchanged? And still
0: is, in many, many instances.
3: And what was the origin of the original?
0: Let's, start, let's tell that story now. Okay. Okay, but yeah. let's go way back. And work our way up to that. So now that I've laid that out, I just, but since we started that way and people were having memories, I wanted to share that now. Uh, but now we can, okay, so uh, in the Torah, the description of Passover is confusing. Look at page, uh, let's look at Parshat Bo, look at uh, page 409. Four oh nine. Exodus chapter twelve. The way the Torah narrative is set up is that the drama of the story of the plagues and Moses and Pharaoh builds and builds and builds. And just before the 10th plague, the slaying of the firstborn, the text pauses and interjects this whole section on... on. Feel free to look at that later, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, so here's what it says down at the bottom of page 4 or 9. It says, The Eternal One said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you, meaning the month of spring. Speak to the whole Israelite community and say to them that on the 10th of this month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let it share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons. You shall contribute for the lamb to what each household will eat. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the 14th day of this month. And then all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh the same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked or in any way with water, but roast it, head, legs, and entrails over the fire. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left till morning, you shall burn it. No leftovers. (laughs) And listen to this. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to the Eternal. For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every male firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt, I, the Eternal. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, so that no, Pasach means Passover, so that no, plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this day shall be one of your, to you one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Eternal throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from the community of Israel. Now, right away... There's something confusing about this text. Is it the Pesach because of the lamb that you sacrifice, and or is it the Matzah festival because we're only take all the leaven out of our house? It doesn't. In other words, it doesn't scan logically. If you follow what I mean, it's a series of instructions, but the why isn't clear. We'll go on a little bit. Yeah.
1: standing there,
0: holding on to my
2: spear. Staff. And, and not
1: staff, m- by staff. And ultimately, to say there's people leaning back on pillows and... Ah, now that's
0: very important. The biblical instruction is, Good. eat it with your loins girded, standing on your feet with your sandals on, and your walking staff in the your hand, and eat it hurriedly.
3: The, the survivors eat it like that. No, they don't they eat they it like that. They, they
0: keep a tradition. Some Sephardic Jews keep a tradition of, when at a certain point in the Seder, getting up and walking around the table yeah, right. to mark that. But they're still doing a Passover Seder. Right. Mm-hmm. The Passover Seder is a leisurely meal, extensive. right? That is, as many of you know, that only comes about in the Roman period, a thousand years later, or, or at least 600 years later than this is being composed. Um, so that's very striking, isn't it? And is the blood around the doorway,
3: is there other,
0: are there other, the, what do we know about that? What do we know about that? What, did, we don't. All we have is this story. This so we're story. going to talk about that in a couple minutes.
3: And was it possibly this, this whole section written at two different times? Yes.
0: Written at two different times? Compiled at a certain time? This is where we can only guess, but where it's uh, worthwhile to guess, I think, because we have some reasonable guesses. Uh, here, we'll go on a little bit. And you shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day, meaning a yantif, a, a holy day, and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them. Only what every person is to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. This
1: is no work at all, <laughs> except for the cooking. Well, listen, they're talking about the male's day. Yeah,
3: yeah. Right, yeah.
0: right, right. <laughs> but also, there's no instruction here about <laughs> preparing a Seder. It's no, like,
1: but except what you can eat. Right, right. What you,
0: can you shall observe, and here it's called, so in the previous verse, it was called, in verse um, uh, um, 13, it says, ki pasachti Alechem Pesach. But in this verse, it's called, you shall observe Chag HaMatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, For on this very day I brought your ranks out of Egypt. Why? Unleavened bread. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. And then it repeats. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. And no leaven shall be found in your houses for seven days. For whoever eats, that's chametz. Whoever eats what is leavened, that person, whether a stranger or a citizen, shall be cut off from the community of Israel. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your settlements you shall eat unleavened bread. Okay. And then that pause is there, and then it says, it goes back to the story. Uh, uh, and Moses tells them: take a bunch of hyssop, slaughter the lamb, dip it in the blood, put it on the doors, then the destroyer, the angel of death, will pass over your home. And you shall observe this institution for all time. And when you enter the land, I'm on verse 25 now, on 412. And when you enter the land that the eternal will give you as promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children ask you, they ask, ma'avodah hazot lachem? what is this that you're doing? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the eternal who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. When, but in Egypt, when smiting the Egyptians, but saved our houses, and the people bowed low in homage, and they went and did so, and then the narrative resumes in the middle of that night, right, etc. I don't want to read that right now because I'm looking at the history of the holiday. And, and then if you go on to page four fourteen, it says, and then they journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, and they started leaving, and. then in verse 43, it goes back to the laws. On page 414, the Eternal One said to Moses and Aaron, this is the law of the Passover offering, chukat ha-pesach. no foreigner shall eat of it, but anyone who is brought into your household and is circumcised may eat. it. And it's, there's the rules of who can participate, which is another inter- interesting thing, which we've talked about in the past, given that in the 20th century and now the 21st, We want to invite people to our Seder, but at the time, it was the rite of the initiated, marking their membership in this clan. And then it says in chapter 13, on page 415, it says, The Eternal One spoke further to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me every male firstborn, human and beast. The first male issue of every womb among the Israelites is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you went free from Egypt, the house of bondage, how the eternal freed you from it with a mighty hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. You go free on this day in the month of Aviv. Aviv is spring. Aviv, other name is Nisan. Uh, and so it's called Chag Aviv, the festival of spring. So when the Eternal has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Chivites, the Jebusites, which was sworn to your ancestors to be given to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall observe in this month the following practice. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival of the Eternal. Throughout the seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. No leavened bread shall be found with you, and no leaven shall be found in all your territory. And you shall explain to your child on that day, it is because of what the Eternal did for me when I went free from Egypt. Um, And this shall serve you as a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead, in order that Torah Adonai, the Torah of the Eternal, may be in your mouth, that with a mighty hand the Eternal freed you from Egypt. You shall keep this institution at its set time from year to year. What
2: what does that mean? This shall serve you as a sign on your head?
3: Good question.
0: Um, Keep it as a question. And when the Eternal has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, and we'll be able to answer part of that question, but only kind of circularly. Um, And when the Eternal has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, as God swore to you and your ancestors, and has given it to you, you shall set apart for the Eternal every first issue of the womb. Every male firstling that your cattle drop every, shall be the Eternals. And, but every firstling ass you shall redeem with a sheep. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck, and you must redeem every male firstborn among your children. And when in time to come, a child of yours asks you, what does this mean? Here we have it again, right? That's the third one. You shall reply... It was with a mighty hand the Eternal brought us out from Egypt, the house of bondage. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Eternal slew every male firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of both human and beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Eternal every first male issue of the womb, but redeem every male firstborn among my children. And so it shall be as a sign upon your hand and a symbol on your forehead that with a mighty hand the Eternal freed us from Egypt." Okay, here's what's fascinating me today. There are three explanations, one after the other, that your child's going to ask you for why you're doing this. One, because we slaughter the lamb, because It uh, it passed over our house. Okay. Two, we eat the matzah because with a mighty arm God freed us from Egypt. Three, in the festival of spring. And three, it's because our firstborn were spared that we're celebrating. So I find that very interesting. Um, this doesn't harmonize automatically. In fact, there's no mention in this passage about how the dough didn't rise. All it talks about is don't have any leaven. Like, it doesn't mention about the dough until the next time it gets talked about in the Book of Leviticus, where um, it's describing the holidays again and is that where it is? Speak to the meal. Hold on. Oh, nope, I'm wrong. I think it's in Deuteronomy uh, that it mentions that there wasn't time for the bread to rise.
1: Right, this is totally.
0: That has nothing to do with, yeah. It's like, in other words, you can get the feeling that the story about the matzah right. and not rising, it gets. A- attached right. to the story of the exodus from Egypt. Does that make sense everybody? Now that's all fine. I just have find this very interesting. So, what Arthur talks about, summarizing what historians best guesses, is, is that there were many springtime festivals in pre-Israelite times. Naturally, there was a festival for the lambing of the flock, right? The firstborn, the first lambs would be offered and, and roasted as a giant spring festival from the shepherding culture. but There was also a farming, an agricultural culture. And in the spring, they would throw out all of their old starter dough, all of their old sourdough. That's what chametz is. Chametz means sourdough, that, that which has fermented. But which they used all year long and they would just eat flatbread until they could harvest the first sheaf of barley and then they would make loaves of the new wheat as a celebration of the new harvest and they would get an, and they would start they would have new starter dough for the for the new year so it was a festival of the barley harvest and somehow this idea of, of after the long winter, getting rid of your st- old starter dough and your old and and starting spring over again, cleaning. spring cleaning, right? So there appears to be perhaps an agricultural festival and a shepherding festival um, that both happened in the spring. Um, and then Arthur talks about this whole interesting thing about this whole thing about the firstborn that you have to redeem your own firstborn.
3: What does redeem mean?
0: It means buy them back.
3: Buy them back. You have
0: to buy them back.
3: Green stamps?
0: Green stamps, right. From the, uh, because the firstborn belonged to God. Can and when you, when you read through the Torah uh, and you look at the story of the binding of Isaac, for example, where God finally says, don't. Don't kill it. No. No. Um, and other clues in the Bible. It's never said explicitly, but historians tend to think that it was common not just in some cultures in the ancient Near East, not just to offer your um, firstborn animals, but your firstborn kids as, uh, to back to God in a completely different understanding. You know, it, Your children are not your children. Right, they, are, they, they, are, they belong to God. And there's enough clues in the Bible that perhaps part of the Passover festival and the whole story of the killing of the firstborn in Egypt but our redeeming of the firstborn because we sacrificed the lamb instead, a firstling lamb, is the idea of substituting an animal sacrifice for what had once been a human sacrifice. We have no, that's a guess. Right, but so there's also, but because the text is so explicit about it, um, then something about being saved is also our firstborn being saved from uh, that God doesn't want our firstborn. That God, God actually, that our God doesn't doesn't require that of us, and we have to give thanks by offering the firstborn of our flock. So there's this, there's the firstborn tradition. There's the agricultural tradition. There's the shepherding tradition. So a good guess of when this became the Passover story is when many scholars think it all became the Passover, or the whole Torah came together, which was in Babylonian exile. When the Jews in the sixth century BCE were exiled to Babylonia and their kingdom was destroyed, perhaps they were no longer connected to the shepherding cycle. They were no longer connected to the agricultural cycle. They were ripped up from their land. Remember, an indigenous people that gets torn away from the land gets torn away from all of their uh, deepest connections. And that's when the Exodus story, which preexisted the Babylonian exile, became the central story for the Jews because they're in exile in Babylonia. And so it's possible that they conflate and bring together at that point the festival of matzah, the festival of um, the lamb being slaughtered for the shepherds, the story of the Exodus, the firstborn tradition, and weave them all together into Passover. that, That becomes Passover. Does that make sense, everybody? I find that interesting, so I wanted to share that with you. Yeah.
3: With the assumption that there
2: was a leaving of Egypt,
0: yes, in yes, the oral tradition, there was still and a story about the was leaving of there. Egypt, yeah. right? Okay. And so naturally, they put the freedom story. Oh, I think that could I borrow that again for a second? Or was it in Arthur's book? Um, it, they one of these authors expressed it. Take, take it back. One of these authors, <laughs> one of these authors expressed it so beautifully in saying that, naturally, the feast of freedom, the feast of spring, the feast of liberation, the feast of spring cleaning and new crops, all of that belonged in the springtime. So the Exodus story, which may not have been located in time as a story, gets located in the month of spring And it all fits together in a beautiful way. Uh, That's a reasonable story of how the agricultural festivals and the historical, mythical got merged together. And so that's what, and and, and scholars tend to think that the Torah that we're reading is woven together during the Babylonian exile as a, because out of a need to have a more unified record of who we are. And that the Babylonian exiles, when they return 100 years later from Babylonia, as they're permitted to, now that the Babylonians are gone and the Persians have taken over and the Persians look upon them more kindly and say, yeah, go back. As long as you pay your taxes, you can rebuild your city. Um, uh, that It's that Torah that they brought with them back from Babylonia. That, that makes sense, everybody? So then we have this holiday, Passover, which becomes this massive, over the next several centuries BCE, this massive pilgrimage holiday. Because it says elsewhere, on these three days of the year, you shall go up to Jerusalem, the place that God will show you, which becomes Jerusalem, and bring your offerings, whether it's in the spring and it's your lamb, or it's Shavuot, seven weeks later, and it's your first fruits, or whether it's Sukkot in the fall and it's your harvest bring them, to the, offer them back to God in gratitude. And these become known as the Shalosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage festivals. By the early first century, there were literally millions of Jews converging on Jerusalem at Passover time. And as an aside, the stories about Jesus coincide with this time. When Jesus goes up to Jerusalem during the Passover season, there are millions of people there. There are massive markets where money changers are like, because you have to buy an animal, to sacrifice. That's the deal, mm-hmm. right? You, 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 if you don't have a, if you don't farm, then you buy an animal to sacrifice, because that's what you're supposed to do, and then roast and then eat with your family. And or um, well,
3: you it, may not be able to transport an it.
0: Or you can't transport it. Or or or. It's massive. King Herod puts in this incredible waterworks with aqueducts coming from the hills higher than Jerusalem to supply water for the pilgrims. He rebuilds the temple. It's already built. It's still called the Second Temple, but he fundamentally rebuilds it and puts in this giant uh, stoneworks that support this enormous plaza, which when you look at pictures of Jerusalem today and you see the Temple Mount, there's no mountain there. It's this big flat area, like 30 acres or something, um, so that the masses can converge on the temple. It's like so much of what we know from archaeology, So it's, it's, the reason they were doing it was to support this massive pilgrimage festival. When you look at pictures of Mecca today and what the Saudis are doing, to make Mecca a place where two million people, the hotels they're building, and the plaza, and the, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but
1: that's kind of a much more, I mean, you know, when we think of what, when we say, anyway, what it really was like. It was like animal screaming, right? It was smelly. Oh, there was are wasted, descriptions. It like well, it was
0: smelly. It was barbecue.
1: Well, but also slaughter blood.
0: Blood. Oh, yes, the Mishnah talks all about this, how they had like, um, uh, what do you call it? gutters. For the blood to flow down, and yeah. needed massive amounts of water so people could do mikvahs and purify themselves. The descriptions in the Mishnah about the about the scene in Jerusalem is really vivid. I really, it's really fun to read. And not
1: romantic, I guess, right? It's not a peaceful, you know. Uh, no, it's like yeah,
0: it's... it, but it's also for them. It wasn't gross. No, that's right. the, so, yeah. the animal slaughter for them was like
3: that was great. That was great. What they did, it was like. Like the harvest. It was a giant
0: climax to their... It's their commitment. It's their commitment. And so surely there were people who were doing it with spiritual elevation, and there were other people who were like tourists. You know, just like, what a scene. Who knows? (laughs) I've always liked to imagine having gotten to see that. You know, when I was in um, India, and I went into a Kali temple where they were slaughtering a goat, and... uh, I'd never seen this before, but they still do it. And not only were they slaughtering the goat, but there were people selling me flower lays outside, and kids wanting to show me around and mm-hmm. give, give them some money. And there were all these like tchotchkes that you could buy holy tchotchkes. You know, what do you call them? <laughs> Re- oh what do you call that stuff? Souvenirs. Well, they were souvenirs, but you know, they have a religious yeah. name. Yeah. I uh, no, just everything. <laughs> that made me think of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. When I was in that scene there, you know. The
2: hurly
0: burly. The hurly burly, yeah, it's not quiet. Yeah. yeah.
3: When we were in Mexico, we went to, you know, it's up in the mountains, and then you come to this huge open plaza, I think it was called Manta Alban or something. Of course, it's empty up there now, there's nothing there. But it's a huge plaza where they used to do all this kind of thing, you know, the in the, I don't know which Indians it was anymore, I can you remember. Uh, in that yes, part yes. of Mexico. Mexico. But the, Mexico these big plazas places places where people would come were common in, 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 uh, yeah. in yeah. Greek and, yeah. and yeah. Mexican yeah. and the malls. Uh, yes. I, I don't know how recent it is, but when I was in Israel two years ago, yeah.
1: there was an archaeological tour along the south wall, yes right, south mm-hmm. wall, where we could walk a- along the street mm-hmm. and
3: see the yeah.
2: stalls where yes. the markets yeah. were. That's right. Right, which was... Standard. That's all been excavated oh, okay.
0: since uh, 1967. Okay. Um, Jerusalem's so great that way because it's just amazing because we have written records and then we have this archaeological dig that frequently, frequently confirms the written record. It's really fun. You can actually, by now, you could say that by now we're entering the realm of, of, of history where we have enough evidence... To reimagine in some p- potentially accurate frame what it might have been like, if you know what I'm saying. Prior to that, we don't. Um, or prior to that, it thins and thins and thins. Uh, anyway, however, with all this description, what's missing about Passover?
3: Got-
0: A Seder. A Haggadah, right? And some of you know about this. There's no Haggadah. There's no Seder. There's a description of what you're supposed to do that involves your clan offering a lamb in the place where God will show you, which becomes Jerusalem, and eating it with matzah and bitter herbs. So we've got all that. Um, But Seder? So some of you know that the Passover Seder, and this is really well-documented scholarship because we have enough records. probably develops in, sometime in the 1st and 2nd century. Before or after the destruction, it's not clear of Jerusalem. Um, I would say probably after, because you have the Seder plate with the symbols on it. Mm-hmm. So somehow the, it's clear that the actual sacrifice is no longer mm-hmm. taking place. Right, right? So, right? So, But sometime yeah. shortly, sometime in, at, somewhere around the late 1st second century, the rabbis devise a whole new ritual to celebrate Passover called the Seder. It is based on a Greek symposium. Remember, the Roman Empire adopted all, Greek was the language of the ancient Near East. The Roman Empire uh, um, allowed Greek wisdom and Greek practices to flourish. right? It, was, it adopted them and adapted them. And it was common, a common practice, to have a meal with teaching and enlivened discussion called a symposium. And the meal included four glasses of wine, hors d'oeuvres that you dipped, uh, a meal, and a topic. And it would end with something called afikomen, which in Greek is epikomenus, though I don't know any Greek. It's a Greek word. And it means epikomenus, after the feast, after the meal, epi. Um, And uh, according to records, that involved getting plastered um, and uh, partying. Uh, The rabbis adopt and adapt the symposium as a sacred discussion meal for Passover, which I think is so cool. Except that they say, it says in the Haggadah, and you do not, listen to this line in the Haggadah, which is, perplexes us endlessly. And you shall not end the Seder with afikomen.
2: Yeah.
0: It says, you shall not end the Seder with afikomen. Instead, you end it by eating that flatbread again um, as a remembrance that we were slaves, so that's the last taste on your mouth. So, interestingly, that piece of matzah eventually becomes known as yep. the afikomen. But the instruction is actually now rather than go get plastered or go bar hopping or whatever, you know, <laughs> eat this piece of poor people's bread to remember that we're free. It seems like to me, and I'm not the first person to say this, but I feel it really strongly, that the rabbis who constructed this idea were both doing cultural appropriation, which is how things go, right? Hanukkah now has, like, you can go to the store and buy Hanukkah decorations. It's like, no. You know, it's like, uh, except they're silver and Gold, or you know, it's like silver and blue. I mean, whatever. Uh, so, cultural appropriation is what people do, right? It's just what we do. Uh, but they seem to have done it with a high level of self awareness, even irony, and the critique of the dominant culture that the oppressed do, right? That the oppressed, the, that the oppressed, um, a uh, group who is under the thumb of Rome adopts their form and then does this to it. That's the Jewish gesture, right? How, what's the word for that?
3: Zets. It gives it a. It's, gives it a. It's a yeah. Dig. Huh? It's a dig.
0: It's a dig. It's saying we're using your form, but we're actually commenting on your form, and we're telling our story about you using our form, because for the, those Jews, the Romans were the, the, the oppressors. So what else do they do in this meal, this symposium, that they call a seder, which just means an order, which is a similar kind of meeting? They say, we recline mm-hmm. on Passover, uh, uh, because only Roman freedmen were allowed to recline. All the servants and slaves, and Romans had plenty of slaves, had to remain standing, and its service. And we know this because in Israel, for example, they had a living room where there were couches. And the people did not, the free men did not eat sitting in chairs. They ate reclining on these couches, right? You know those pictures. Uh, And so the Jews say, we're going to recline like free men. And so they take. Symbols of the Roman Empire, of Roman culture, I mean, and Greek culture, they put it into this meal and they reinvent Passover, how you celebrate it. Completely reinvent it. There's nothing in here that happens in a Haggadah, in a Seder, uh, except that we do eat bitter herbs. We have a roasted shank bone. We eat the matzah.
1: We we, uh, answer the questions.
0: That's the important part. Uh, I saw a hand. Yeah, I just, it, I, it's
1: been my understanding that it had to be disguised in, in the Roman uh, in the form of, of the Roman theology. That is
0: a possible, is a possible <laughs> explanation, uh, which could be true. And the reason it could be true that they were doing this subversively, that they had to hide their intentions, mm-hmm. is the story in the Haggadah about the rabbis in B'nai Brock. Right. In the traditional Haggadah, a paragraph gets inserted before the narrative begins about the rabbis who gathered in the the luminaries of the late 1st and early 2nd century. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi the others there. Um, and they spend the whole night debating and discussing the Exodus until someone has to come to them and say, it's morning. It's time for the morning Shema. Do you remember that section? Yeah. There are two, interpreta- two main interpretations of that passage. One is the encouragement to debate and discuss the story. The other is the possibility that they were having, under the cover of a symposium, having a meeting planning rebellion. Right? We have no proof, but it's perfectly reasonable. Um, because the rabbis insert the crucial line in the Haggadah at the... Um, uh, um, beginning of the telling. In every generation, each of us must view ourselves as going forth from slave Egypt to freedom. Well, what's that mean? Are they being symbolic? Or are, are they saying, no, 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 There's an oppressor to throw off in every generation. Well, the traditional Haggadah says, v'hi Amda, the one, there are those, Avotena Villanu, those who have stood up to try to destroy us, both to our ancestors and to us. Ella Really, in every generation, someone seems to rise up to destroy us. Uh, but the holy one, blessed be he, saves us from their hands. Um, so maybe they understood the Haggadah as speaking to them. They certainly it certainly appears that way from the language they chose. But they transformed Passover commemoration into this Greek form. That's leisurely. That, and what they did for their clue was they looked in the Torah and it says over and over again, and when your child asks you. And when your child asks you. And when your child asks you. And they said, the purpose of this meal is pedagogical. Right, we're going to, it's a symposium. But it's a symposium where we reaffirm everything that we are and stand for. So
1: if this, if this happened after the destruction of the temple, mm-hmm. The most brilliant way of find of not you know making the, the thing it's in the home. The children are right there. the 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 um, must go on. The teaching, the story, everything. It's just it's. I mean, it's, it's, it's always in- been brilliant, but it's even it's like it had to be invented if we were going to. Well, move the, on together.
0: Right in this. And thank you. I think, it, I think it. I think so too. Do you want to add point, something?
3: Just that they had to move from the central point when they had the the temple to the home. The home then took on a whole new aspect. Right. Of but imagine of all of on these homes. homes. I mean, that's what's so incredible.
2: Right. All
0: these homes are doing pretty much the same thing. Uh huh. That's right. Right. So, just as in this understanding of Jewish history and not just Jewish, but, any, but we've been around so long that we can look at it this way. Just as the Babylonian exile gave the Jews an impetus to reformulate themselves in the form of the Torah, some 600 years later, the, uh, the Roman destruction gave them impetus to again figure out a way how to tell this story in a form that was transferable, that spoke to that generation. Now, when you study the Talmud, the actual Haggadah, and this we're getting closer to your question, was not in fixed form because the four questions, for example, in the Talmud, fascinatingly, they don't have four questions. They have a whole bunch of questions. And they say, uh, this is so the kids will ask questions. And they list all kinds of questions. And then they have stories that Rabbi so-and-so would, would bring out pop uh, um, um, roasted grains, you know, like treats, yeah. snacks, and then take them away before the kids could eat they them, eat them. So and empty, clear the table, and the, the table so that the kids would ask, why are you doing that? Do <laughs> you understand it was, it was a pedagogical form, but not, a, not necessarily fixed yet in the early centuries. The Haggadah in a fixed form comes into play sometime, mm, who knows, 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. Those, the earliest Haggadah we have is from 10th century, I think, that, that we still have in our hands. That's basically what we know of as the Haggadah. So it's a fluid form that eventually gets fixed. And then with the, let's see, the uh, irony of how rituals work, the four questions become fixed when they were intended to be spurs for further discussion, right? And so by the, now that doesn't mean that that wasn't deeply meaningful. Still, all through the centuries that we were just gathering for this festival where we remembered, remember because this is a festival where we gather to remember who we are, how we came into being, pass that story on to our children, and that God is going to one day redeem us. Right. So it's an incredible gathering, because we're gathering not just to reiterate and re- recreate who we are, but also to give us hope to keep going. Right? It's a beautiful, beautiful festival. In modern times, the rote recitation is no longer sufficient, Backfired, right? right? It's no longer sufficient because the traditional, the traditional container is falling apart. So if the traditional container of the Jewish community is falling apart, how can the recital of these traditional words, they lose their oomph, right? They, and we start to ask, what is this? That's when, to bring us all the way up to the present, this impulse reasserts itself to? reinvent passover again right we are in the midst of the reinvention of passover Um, we're keeping the seder but i think one of the most crucial changes that's happening is that in the modern era we're not restricting it to jews alone The
3: universality of
0: it in the spirit of of modernity we are presenting it as our universal story of freedom not just our particular story of liberation. Does that make sense? Um, and that's perfect, because it's, it matches the spirit of the times, but it's also authentic. Because already embedded in this story is the idea that the creator of the universe doesn't tolerate tyrants. So it immediately ex- is, it can expand to be a universal story as well. Carol and Pauline? Um,
1: yeah. I'm thinking of a seder that we went to a number of years ago in Rome, in the Sephardic temple. So we we you know we could recognize when they were doing right. something, but that was about it, and the, and reading rice and everything. So, <laughs> but when those children sang the Manashtana. right? Now that that's not universal. That's something that we appreciate because it's ours. And in this in this place where almost nothing else was familiar to me. Right. Except I knew I was at a Seder. Right. This melody, the words right. didn't matter. This melody, these children, blew my mind.
0: And that is can you hold on one second? Yeah, and that is the modern condition, which is that. We need to somehow hold on to the particular while we acknowledge the universal. And it's a continual dilemma of modernity. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, because it, if we reinvent the Seder and don't have the Seder, the order, and the sort of key points in it, we're going to lose it. But if we keep the structure and put in new insertions and and Then the holiday can thrive uh, in what is a very complex world we live in right now. Uh, so I understand. No, it's not about abandoning the particular. The modern dilemma, the modern conundrum, is how to maintain the particular while incorporating the universal. You, you follow what I'm saying? That's, that's what this was the very first attempt to do in 1942. Pauline. And I,
3: I think another aspect which is interesting of the modern situation is that while it became more universal, I think, when people felt, well, we're really not you know, at risk anymore, but you know, as Jews, we look at this other world. But also, and it might have to do with reconstructionism that has come in, is how to make it personally meaningful. So while it became universal, I think a lot of sayings in the last 20, 30, More. 40 years, you can hear people talk about, well, in my life, what, what freedom means to me. You know, I had a divorce this year. I got free, whatever. I mean, whatever they said, people began just as they did in the synagogue, in prayers, in other cedarin. as Jews how to make it personally meaningful. And I think that's also an issue why we become more universal. We are so bent on personal meaning, and especially in our century, I think, that we delve into that. So now we have to hold on to what Carol said, taking in these two other aspects, which is really
0: something. Right, right. That is our, that is our challenge. Yes?
3: Um, the um, description of the, the children, the wicked child, the oh, one can, who does not know how to ask. <laughs> At what point did
1: those descriptions
0: come in? That comes in early. And here's how it comes in. You know about the four sons, mm-hmm. uh, the wicked, the, the wise, the wicked, the simple, and the one who doesn't know how to ask. How do the rabbis come up with this? There are four times in the Torah when Passover is being described when it says, and when your child asks you. Three in this passage and one more in Deuteronomy. So they looked at the context of each question and the answer that is given, that is instructed to be given, and they said, we have four paradigms here. And because the rabbis understood this as a teaching meal, they also wanted to make sure that you understood that you had to teach it in a way that, that there are learning styles. This is actually a pedagogic, the, the, the traditional Haggadah, which can be opaque to us. What do you mean four sons? Who's the wicked son? Blah, blah, blah. For them was clearly, here are four learning styles, and um, you need to address them in a way that they're going to be receiving the message. And so that is also inserted in the traditional Haggadah before the actual telling begins. So, a lot of things are happening. The four questions. In the section of the Haggadah called the telling, the Magid, the fifth part of the Seder, it doesn't begin with the telling. It begins with instructions about how to tell.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Elicit questions. Mm -hmm. Know that there are different kinds of learners and listeners. Mm -hmm. Think about your, your audience, your classroom, right? Isn't that fascinating? But the way they do it, because they love the number four, is that. They find that there are four references in the Torah. How did they come up with the four cups of wine? Well, in a symposium, there were four cups of wine. But they look in the Torah for a beautiful verse that represents a fourness. Here, I'll show you what that verse is. Um, If you look.
1: The four promises.
0: Yes. If you look in Exodus chapter 6, I'll tell you what page. So they're doing classic rabbi stuff. They're looking in the Torah for both guidance and for framework for what they actually want to get across. They're, not, they're being true to the Torah because the Torah clearly wants us to tell our children. And then they're expanding on the Torah by saying, well, there are different ways to talk to kids. Depends who you've got there. And so in modern Haggadahs, my friend, uh, uh, my colleague Howard Cohen just sent out to my listserv, his sister works with... Um, Um, uh, all kinds of kids an occupational therapist and she rewrote the four children to talk about kids who have very difficult difficulty learning and she rewrote how you should talk to this child Mm. and how you should talk to this child it was brilliant Mm. and I thought true to the spirit Um, so if you look in in Baera in in, uh, oh thank you yeah, you're right, though. Um, yeah, page 382. If you look in verse 5, it says... Now I have heard, now heard the moaning of the Israelites because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6 is the key verse. Say therefore to the children of Israel, I am Yod-Heh-Vav-Ve, etchem, I will bring you out from the burdensome labor of, under the Egyptians. Etchem, me'avod etchem, and I will deliver you. I will, I will deliver you from their bondage etchem bizroa netuya, and I will free you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and extraordinary signs. etchem, and I will take you to be my people. So they take these four verbs. God saying, I will bring you out, I will save you, I will redeem you, and I will take you to be mine. As the four cups of wine. They use that as their midrash on the four cups of wine. But then if you go on with the verse, it says, And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you will know that I am God. So they say, but there's a fifth cup. The you will know me. And remember, yadatem is intimate Intimate knowledge, that's what Yadad means in Hebrew. It's like, you will be intimately in, in, em, in, acquainted with, with embraced mm-hmm. by. And they say, that's the fifth cup, the one we don't drink now because we're going to drink it when the Messiah comes, in the fi- when, when everything is finally put together. Then we're going to know God intimately, and they call that Elijah's cup. Because Elijah, it, it earns the position of having the last word in the whole section of the Torah, the books of the prophets. And it says, and lo, a great day is coming, a great and awesome day is coming, when Elijah the prophet will come, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons, or the hearts of the parents to the children, and the hearts of the children to the parents. It can't be an accident that they chose to have Elijah be part of the Seder, because this is the feast of parents telling the story to their children. And the days is so it like it echoes that if you were a knowledgeable, are or were a knowledgeable Jew, when you heard Elijah, you and you know your Torah, you will hear that verse. Behind it, hearts of parents turning to children and children turning to parents. Um, and that's the fifth cup. On that day, God's name, God will be one. In God's name, God's name will be one. God will be one by Yom HaHu. Isn't that beautiful? So it's the cup that they put on the table for when now this, it says in the traditional this year we are slaves, yeah. next year we shall be free, this year we are in exile, next year we shall be in the land of Israel. That's the words of the rabbi saying, yes on one level we're remembering our freedom but we're still not free. And there's that cup to remind us that to keep you the faith. In. Yeah?
3: Um, so what,
0: what would it be when the Messiah comes? And when the Messiah comes, and yeah. there will never be a specific or literal picture of this because it's in, that's not the way Judaism develops its Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. stuff. It's not like, <laughs> this is Day. what's going to happen with the Messiah. But the general understanding is we will be, Am mm-hmm. we'll be a free people in our own land once again, able to go up to Jerusalem for Passover. Right? That's for a people in exile, the rabbis, for whom by the time of 116 and 132 in the second century are forbidden from even entering the Temple Mount.
3: But since Israel, I mean, just saying that since Israel now exists.
0: Exactly.
3: And we are free to go. Right. Then what else would the Messiah
0: bring us? That is our modern question. Okay, so that's beautiful. So you asked me why four, uh, First, you said why four children, and I explained, and then I said, but I'll tell you how they, how, what they did with the four cups. But here we are. In the last 68 years, we are, once again, we are not in exile anymore. We can get on a plane. So we are faced with another completely disruptive turn of history that makes us have to look at this and say, well, what do we mean now?
3: And, that's who and that's, that makes
0: your seder still a seder of questions. Right? Rather than me telling you an answer, because um, I have, I, I'm fat. it's like, wow. OK, here we are. Here's the ancient question. This is a night of questions. That's why the New Reconstruction Saggadah, this is the original one, yes, the New Reconstruction Saggadah, they called a night of questions, questions, which I really love. Um, and
3: that particular Hagada, a lot of the different explanations for things that you just gave, you could find in there. Oh, this is they practically you, a reference book. You have to study it before because, Passover. But they give, give you choices of where you can go, and a lot of this background material right in this Hagada. This is a really... So
0: there are Jews who say, there are Jews who, uh, who think, who more traditional Jews or more Orthodox Jews for whom God's hand is visibly in history and for whom now that we're back, it's time to take over the Temple Mount and rebuild the Temple. I mean, hey. That's what we do. That's, that's, you can logically follow that argument. Uh, uh, even if it starts World War Three. Right, um, but you can logically follow it. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, a problem. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. It's a problem of having our spiritual history and our and our political history all mushed up together. That's part of what it means to be Jewish. Um, I don't have I don't have good I don't have the answer to this. But what it points out is why the Haggadah needs in the modern how. We have, in, we have we have experienced such a disruption and transformation of our physical and political situation, of our um, our uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, our cosmology, our understanding of history, our idea of human beings as one family of of, of that we have this magnificent inheritance that that, that somehow it's time. And we're busy engaged in, how do we carry this into this new paradigm that we inhabit? Because it is a new paradigm, right? We are in so many ways. That's the beautiful question. That's why a Passover Seder, I'm really looking forward to Now my kids aren't little anymore, so I'm thinking to myself, what are they going to want to talk about this Passover?
3: I'm changed over the earth. It's well, a I, I've, been looking, yes. I've been
0: looking at the ten, the ten plagues. I'm going to focus on this at my family's Seder. When you study the ten plagues, every single one of them, save okay. the last one, is, a, is nature out of balance. Thank
2: you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That's Arthur. That's yeah. Arthur, too. Arthur down? Waskow, who is this is what he does. He's like, a, yes. he, he generates this, this you know, it's, it's nature out of balance.
2: Ten plague could be nature
0: out of balance too. Yeah. Oh, the for killing of the firstborn. Right, right. The ultimate um yeah, with the so so How do we wanna maybe we wanna revisit how we how we we keep the plagues in. In other words, we keep the Seder. We keep it all, but how do we wanna make that what it means to us today? And for me, that's following the explicit instruction of the rabbis in every generation you must view yourself as having gone forth from slavery to freedom. And even if all of us were wise, all of us learned in Torah, all of us knowledgeable, it would still be incumbent upon us to retell this story. And, and I'm just quoting, anyone who elaborates on the story is worthy of praise. It's almost like the rabbis gave us the instruction, not almost as it. the rabbis gave us the instruction for how to approach this sacred meal. And over the centuries, it became fixed into a a text, and people forgot. And you can actually read those words and completely ignore... uh, They cannot register at all because you're going around the table, Mm -hmm. and it's Uncle Sam, and he reads his paragraph, and they read... and Wait! Stop! Hold it! (laughs) That's what I want to say at that point. Do you understand what I'm saying? Pauline?
3: I just want to say, you know, it's really interesting, this whole modern era, because even in this first book that you quoted, and he talks about Pharaoh as an arch tyrant. And he already sets the stage to go beyond our own family of Jews. And for people that don't know, there's like an organization like Trua, which used to be the Rabbis for Human Rights, every year they put out a new supplement. Three years ago, it was the refugees from Sudan. Then, then last year it was human trafficking in the world, Um, and I I think this year might be quite. Well, friends, my
0: inbox is filling up with the 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 the, uh, highest the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Yeah. Their Pagata supplement is about refugees. Syrian
3: refugee. Yeah. Right. Right.
0: (laughs) That obviously that's on the that's that's ripped from the headlines. Right. Um, The uh, I got one from um, the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life. Uh, called Kojl, yes, and theirs is all about the environment. environment, and the I think it's fantastic. And then, of course, there's Mazon, which is right, to feed the hungry, and they've been doing this for 30, 40 years now, at least, 40 and it years.
3: takes such great pride, I have to say, it takes such great pride that we're able to take this whole convergence of history, culture, spirituality, religion, and and care about all of these things, t- to whatever degree we care about it. The fact that it's there on our table for this most important holiday, I think, is magnificent. Mm-hmm.
0: And, I, I know know that, really and I know that one of my kids, or one of, their, one of my cousins, you know, these lovely, sweet, wonderful, brilliant kids, is going to, just like Arthur looked out the window in Washington, DC, and saw the Federal Army um, putting a curfew on the black population. It's one of them is going to talk about the Israeli army in the uh, yes, Palestinian town, ta- 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 and who's the out. taskmaster, and who's this, and, who's, and we have to talk about we're it. Our own foe, that's right. We have to talk about it, or as far as we're as far as they're concerned, they're going to write us off. Well, yeah, well we have no, to
3: talk about using disposables, right? Is this theater going well, to? Well, uh, I just
0: want to. Uh, no, I want to. Uh, I just want to say that this is the hot hottest yes. issue. Right? Uh-huh. It's it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And if I don't talk about it with them at my Seder, the new, then this Haggadah, this holiday, the they're gonna say the is bullshit. It's bullshit.
3: bullshit. Right. It's artificial. Right?
0: Absolutely. That's what I'm saying, so we're challenged. It's a challenging holiday because we're inviting them to ask questions. Per the instructions of the sages. And uh I love, as you know, that this central Jewish commemoration is about generations talking to each other. It's amazing.
3: It's a parallel of the living Torah that this is not just something that is given as the impression, and that's it, but we are told from the very beginning to reinvent.
0: -hmm. But if we don't know the form,:
3: then you can. then like, we're in Avanah. trouble..
0: Right. No. If, if we don't master the form, and, and that's why I'm doing this class, right? if we can't master the form enough, then we can't carry it on. So if this is a tradition worth keeping, we have to take the time and energy to master the form, so that we can then riff on the form. Right? But the if you boundary. haven't mastered the form and all you're doing is riffing, it doesn't have any staying power. Now fortunately, a lot of the form doesn't require much mastery. It's a particular day. There are particular foods. There, so that's all good. You know, that gives us a leg up right there. It's not like going to Sholan Yom Kippur, where it's just a whole, all prayers. You know, it's, uh, it's like there's all of this um, uh, uh, framework that we can build on. But if we don't know the history, don't know the order, don't understand the origins, then we're in trouble. We're in Torah, yeah.
3: All right, so, so why are there two satyrs?
0: That is such a great question. I'm so glad you're here.
3: Yeah, and good questions. Yes,
0: okay. Question. You're, you're taking the pressure off of me. My pleasure. <laughs> good question. My pleasure. Did you notice that it says, you shall celebrate this for seven days, and the first day shall be a holy day, and the last day shall be a holy day? Right? That's, that's what it says in the text we just read here in Torah. In As the Jews were scattered in the diaspora, so now we're dealing with again, starting about 2,000 years ago, because even while the temple stood, Jews lived all over the Roman Empire and extending all the way to Babylonia too. So there were Jews in multiple time zones when there was no way to communicate uh, faster than I don't know a horse could, a horse could run um, or a camel that's right, or a boat Uh, So there we are. And uh, the way that the calendar was determined, the way the new month, the new moon of the month of Nisan, the first month, was determined, was by folks for whom this was their designated task looking for the new moon in the sky, in the western sky, and declaring it's the new moon. From Jerusalem. From Jerusalem. They had a system of signal fires that then would be lit to pass the word. Signal fires was the fastest way, right? smoke signals. Um, but there were still Jews on the Iberian Peninsula. A signal fire wasn't going to get there. You know what I mean? So that meant that people in the Iberian Peninsula couldn't be sure if the sliver might be on one day or maybe the next night because they were far enough away to have, maybe have the skies be a little different. or have. So the rabbis in Jerusalem in the first century decreed that if you live in the diaspora, celebrate two nights, so that to be sure that you're coinciding with the night when it's actually celebrated in Jerusalem. Because there was no way to communicate faster than that. Because it was a pilgrimage holiday. And you were supposed to be in Jerusalem. That's why the Haggadah ends next year. That's why it ends that way. It's that old. You're supposed to be in Jerusalem. Maybe next year we'll be able to be there. Right? So, so in the diaspora, two days, two satyrs, um, so that to be sure that when the sacrifices will be made, because this happens while the temple is already stand, still standing. If you can't get to Jerusalem, at least do it where you are and do it twice to make sure you're doing it on the same night that it's being done in Jerusalem where all the pilgrims are
1: but now that we know when it's happening in Jerusalem
2: why not if well happens, because there are so many
0: like you're divorced and they need to go to this family i <laughs> mean okay. need to go well no, no the reform movement the reform movement eliminated the second savior after at, with modern communications the reform movement said this was a specific, not a religious decision. This was a practical decision, right. and we don't need it anymore. In Israel, they've never had two seders.
1: Right.
0: However, customs are customs.
1: Because most Reformed Jews I know have two seders. Customs yeah. are customs, no. and
0: they just and, and once it's been around for 2,000 years, people seem to keep doing it. But it gets repurposed, three, which is really three, interesting. Three, two, three. Now that seders, in addition to the fact that uh, many families, it's actually very convenient to have two seders. But now that seders have become an advertisement for Judaism,
2: is that fair enough to say? Yes. Um,
0: then it's such, and especially in the United States, where the story of, of liberty and freedom is like the American story, throwing off the yoke of King George and declaring our. You know, that's why Benjamin Franklin was suggesting the national seal be uh, the Red Sea split. And, the, you know, it's like American history, especially early American, the founding, founding fathers were so, so in, involved in the biblical story and really identified with it, which is another, maybe another reason why Jews have found a, 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 a haven here. I don't know. Um, uh, anyway um, it's, it becomes an advertisement for Judaism this is our festival of freedom and so there are now third seders there have been for 50, 60 years there are mm-hmm. se- people are having se- it's like seder last galore women, now
3: no, I have last night women satyrs. women satyrs, community seders, seders,
0: seders, seders uh,
3: African American right.
0: right So, but that's the reason why there are two and that's the reason why the, the only reason why to continue is because traditions die hard. you know. And so even though some, but if you go to Israel, one Seder, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're done.
3: Yeah, we were there for, uh, in Israel for one Seder. It was great. They had a great time. Great time. <laughs> right. right, right. And I've
0: gotten to go some years to my brothers for Seder, and it's like fantastic. What a great time. Right, right. We're done. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the second Seder is like, I don't know about this. But that's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. Okay, we have, we have no. a few more minutes. It
1: is interesting that recon didn't didn't go back to. Washington. They did. Okay, they did. So the
0: reconstructionist would also said there's no reason to have two satyrs anymore. Sayers, yeah. but, but there's families. what. The, but listen, there's what the leaders say, and then there's what people actually do, right? And once again, the 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 many studies of Jewish history like. There are the decrees the rabbis make. I remember studying this in rabbinical school. In the Middle Ages, a whole bunch of rabbinic decrees were made that are called in English, sumptuary laws, which were decrees by rabbis that you shouldn't have over-the-top parties. And the reason was that poor people and people of lesser means shouldn't be shamed by not being able to have a great wedding. And instead, the rabbis tried to institute, and there was success, in much of Eastern European Jewish world, communal funds to help indigent brides, for example, when there couldn't be a dowry. Lots of beautiful, beautiful things. But meanwhile, you'd have to say that the reason there's so many decrees about sumptuary laws is because the people were ignoring them. You know what I mean? It's like, why is it mentioned over and over and over again? Well, the only reasonable explanation is because people wanted to have big parties and kept doing it. So again, it's like, yeah, there's a decree. It's time to get rid of the second Seder. We love our second Seder. That's when we go to Grandpa's house. You know, it's like, so...
3: So that's a, So I actually,
1: I had a similar thought about the uh, repetition of tell your children, right? Yeah. I, I would think that it would be like, now our kids say, are we there yet, right, when we travel? But the kids were bored, and you had to keep... Mm-hmm. Um, the Talmud is clear that the kids are getting bored, bored and, and you don't want them to fall asleep and so
0: you do this and you do yeah. this yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that one of the innovations that is, is a good one I think is that when you make the blessing over vegetables when you dip the in. parsley into the salt water and it comes right at the beginning of the meal that you serve the salad yeah. And you that's what the, we do at our Seder. Salad, we serve the whole salad course. And then people eat and eat, and then we can go on with the story and mm-hmm. not everybody's so nudgy. Yeah. You know, you got to think of stuff like this, right? Okay. Because...
2: Good idea.
0: Yeah. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yep. Yeah. And then there's so much about the Seder that is the unspoken, the, the visual, the know. oral, the. People remember the relationship, right? Are. Right? If you, if you manage you to hold on to, There's a reason. That,
3: yeah, everybody must sing it. But if they really tried to look at the translation of what they're singing, it would make absolutely no sense.
0: No, it doesn't make any sense. So, and um,
3: family customs that become as important as whatever written in the That's
0: Bible. right. That's right. Uh, and it's a challenge because we're more and more scattered. You know, where it could...
2: Yeah, geographically. Uh, yeah,
0: where, I mean, my mother grew up where all her cousins were within a subway ride, and then we moved to the suburbs, and it was a drive, and then my generation's all over the country, so... It's, I
3: did have kids there. I told you we are doing summer. a ninth-day Seder. Now, listen,
0: yeah. a ninth-day Seder, because that's when our kids can...
3: Yeah, it's when we'll be back, and my kids can... We, we, it's the only time we had that we could
2: actually be mm-hmm. in the same city.
0: Right. So the advent, another advantage of living in Israel. Oh,
2: Everybody's head. on vacation. <laughs> Nobody has any
0: there's no, no hindrance school, for it. No, no school. Everything closes no down. National exams You being can't even given. buy bread in the supermarket. Um, it makes it easier. It's like you doing know, Shabbat. It makes it easier.
3: It just happens.
0: So uh, uh, so good. Good. Oh thank you very much. This was a this is a good trajectory. Nice. Next week, let's we'll, we'll look at the Haggadah together uh, as another way of getting ourselves preparing for Pesach. Okay, everybody. Okay. okay thank you. I, I would like you. To-